Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 12, Guns and Good Company Part 1 Epigraph La compagnie de tante âme vous plaît, noble, junes, actifs, la liberté de cette conversation sans art est une façon de vie mazel et sans cérémonie. Montaigne The old pattern began to repeat itself. The Bookham days, like a longer and more glorious holidays, drew to their end. A scholarship examination and, after that, the army, loomed behind them like a grimmer term. The good time had never been better than in its last months. I remember, in particular, glorious hours of bathing in Donegal. It was surf bathing, not the formal affair with boards that you have now, but mere rough and tumble, in which the waves, the monstrous, emerald, deafening waves, are always the winner. And it is at once a joke, a terror, and a joy to look over your shoulder and see, too late, one breaker of such sublime proportions that you would have avoided him had you known he was coming. But they gather themselves up, preeminent above their fellows, as suddenly and unpredictably as a revolution. It was late in the winter term of 1916 that I went to Oxford to sit for my scholarship examination. Boys who have faced this ordeal in peacetime will not easily imagine the indifference with which I went. This does not mean that I underestimated the importance, in one sense, of succeeding. I knew very well by now that there was hardly any position in the world save that of a don in which I was fitted to earn a living and that I was staking everything on a game in which few won and hundreds lost. As Kirk had said of me in a letter to my father, I did not, of course, see it till many years later, You may make a writer or a scholar of him, but you'll not make anything else. You may make up your mind to that. And I knew this myself. Sometimes it terrified me. What blunted the edge of it now was that whether I won a scholarship or no, I should next year go into the army and even a temper more sanguine than mine could feel, in 1916, that an infantry subaltern would be insane to waste anxiety on anything so hypothetical as his post-war life. I once tried to explain this to my father. It was one of the attempts I often made, though doubtless less often than I ought, to break through the artificiality of our intercourse and admit him to my real life. It was a total failure. He replied at once with fatherly counsels about the necessity of hard work and concentration, the amount that he had already spent in educating me, the very moderate, nay, negligible assistance he would be able to give me in later life. Poor man. He misjudged me sadly if he thought that idleness at my book was among my many vices. And how, I asked myself, could he expect the winning or losing of a scholarship to lose none of its importance when life and death were the real issues? The truth is, I think, that while death, mine, his, everyone's, was often vividly present to him as a subject of anxiety and other emotions, it had no place in his mind as a sober, matter-of-fact contingency from which consequences could be drawn. At any rate, the conversation was a failure. It shipwrecked on the old rock. His intense desire for my total confidence coexisted with an inability to listen, in any strict sense, to what I said. He could never empty or silence his own mind to make room for an alien thought. My first taste of Oxford was comical enough, 
I had made no arrangements about quarters, and, having no more luggage than I could carry in my hand, I sallied out of the railway station on foot to find either a lodging house or a cheap hotel. All agog for dreaming spires and last enchantments, my first disappointment at what I saw could be dealt with. Towns always show their worst face to the railway. But as I walked on and on, I became more bewildered. Could this succession of mean shops really be Oxford? But I still went on, always expecting the next turn to reveal the beauties, and reflecting that it was a much larger town than I had been led to suppose. Only when it became obvious that there was very little town left ahead of me, that I was, in fact, getting to open country, did I turn round and look. There, behind me, far away, never more beautiful since, was the fabled cluster of spires and towers. I had come out of the station on the wrong side, and been all this time walking into what was even then the mean and sprawling suburb of Botley. I did not see to what extent this little adventure was an allegory of my whole life. I merely walked back to the station, somewhat footsore, took a hansom, and asked to be driven to some place where I can get rooms for a week, please. The method, which I should now think hazardous, was a complete success, and I was soon at tea in comfortable lodgings. The house is still there, the first on the right as you turn into Mansfield Road out of Hollywell. I shared the sitting room with another candidate, a man from Cardiff College, which he pronounced to be architecturally superior to anything in Oxford. His learning terrified me, but he was an agreeable man. I have never seen him since. It was very cold, and next day snow began to fall, turning pinnacles into wedding cake decorations. The examination was held in the Hall of Oriel, and we all wrote in greatcoats and mufflers and wearing at least our left-hand gloves. The provost, Old Phelps, gave out the papers. I remember very little about them, but I suppose I was outshone in pure classics by many of my rivals and succeeded on my general knowledge in dialectics. I had the impression that I was doing badly. Long years, or years that seemed long, with the knock, had cured me of my defensive Wyvernian priggery, and I no longer supposed other boys to be ignorant of what I knew. Thus the essay on a quotation from Johnson. I had read several times the Boswellian conversation in which it occurred, and was able to replace the whole question in that context. But I never thought that this, any more than a fairish knowledge of Schopenhauer, would gain me any particular credit. It was a blessed state to be in, but for the moment, depressing. As I left the hall after that essay, I heard one candidate say to his friend, I worked in all my stuff about Rousseau and the social contract. That struck dismay into my soul. For though I had dabbled, not to my good, in the confessions, I knew nothing of the contrat social. At the beginning of the morning, a nice Harrovian had whispered to me, I don't even know if it's Sam or Ben. In my innocence, I explained to him that it was Sam and could not be Ben, because Ben was spelled without an H. I did not think there could be any harm in giving away such information. When I arrived home, I told my father that I had almost certainly failed. It was an admission calculated to bring out all his tenderness and chivalry. The man who could not understand a boy's taking his own possible or probable death into account could very well understand a child's disappointment. Not a word was now heard of expenses and difficulties. Nothing but consolation, reassurance, and affection. Then, almost on Christmas Eve, we heard that Univ, University College, had elected me. Though I was now a scholar of my college, I still had to pass responsions, which involved elementary mathematics. To prepare for this, I returned after Christmas for one last term with Kirk, 
a golden term, poignantly happy under the approaching shadow. At Easter I was handsomely plowed in responsions, having been unable, as usual, to get my sums right. Be more careful, was the advice that everyone gave me, but I found it useless. The more care I took, the more mistakes I made, just as, to this day, the more anxiously I fair copy a piece of writing, the more certain I am to make a ghastly clerical error in the very first line. In spite of this, I came into residence in the summer, Trinity, term of 1917. For the real object now was simply to enter the university officer's training corps as my most promising route into the army. My first studies at Oxford, nevertheless, still had responsions in view. I read algebra, devil take it, with old Mr. Campbell of Hertford, who turned out to be a friend of our dear friend Janie M. That I never passed responsions is certain, but I cannot remember whether I again sat for it and was again plowed. The question became unimportant after the war for a benevolent decree exempted ex-servicemen from taking it. Otherwise, no doubt, I should have had to abandon the idea of going to Oxford. I was less than a term at Univ when my papers came through and I enlisted, and the conditions made it a most abnormal term. Half the college had been converted into a hospital and was in the hands of the RAMC. In the remaining portion lived a tiny community of undergraduates, two of us not yet of military age, two unfit, and one, a sinfiner, who would not fight for England, and a few other oddments which I never quite placed. We dined in the little lecture room, which is now a passage between common room and hall. Small though our numbers were, about eight, we were rather distinguished, for we included E.V. Gordon, afterwards professor of English at Manchester, and A.C. Ewing, the Cambridge philosopher, also that witty and kindly man, Theobald Butler, skilled in turning the most lurid limericks into Greek verse. I enjoyed myself greatly, but it bore little resemblance to normal undergraduate life, and was for me an unsettled, excited, and generally useless period. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow, and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>